Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from Alibi Baby, Gilvine Hotel Detective Mystery Series Book 4, written by Stuart Sterling. Gilvine is the quick-thinking, compassionate chief security officer at the fashionable Plaza Royale Hotel. While investigating a routine disturbance complaint in the Tower Apartments, Gil finds himself enmeshed in a deadly struggle for control of a fabulous fortune in oil. The intrigue involves the beautiful, naive Kears sisters, Sari and Maylene, ruthless T. Baker Barrow, king of the wildcatters, suave Monsieur Armand Lejeur, and the inscrutable Ras Daiklin. When Maylene Kears, a girl who will tell any lie to alibi herself out of trouble, is murdered, Sari Kears, her sister, inspires Gil, who believes her not only innocent but in danger, to outdo himself in detection. Two more people will be murdered before the fight over control of the oil fortune is ended. As always in the Gilvine Mysteries, life behind the scenes of a large hotel is painted for the listener in fascinating detail. Vine is at his best in this installment of the series as the hotel detective does his best to protect the Plaza Royale's reputation and also stop the series of murders. He will have to risk not only his life but his job if he hopes to untangle the web of intrigue and violence that holds the luxury hotel in its grip. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from Alibi Baby. Chapter 1. The phone rang as I started on the Caspian caviar Sandor had sent down with the half-bottle of Schloss Johannesburger left over from the gourmet's gamble up in the crystal room. With half a mouthful, I said, Security, fine speaking. Gil, this is Reedy. That witty woman in 32D claims they're running a romp in the next suite. She can't sleep. It impressed me that Reedy Duman, our assistant manager on the night side, and a very suave specimen, sounded upset. Regretfully, I stuck the spoon back into Beluga. See if I can calm the troubled waters. The old fuddy sounded frightened, Gil. Serve her right, wouldn't it? The widow, the formidable Madame Luella Belpardie, had been regularly scaring the pants off tower floor maids and room service personnel ever since she'd checked into that Avenue View suite a couple of weeks before, complaining bitterly and continually about all sorts of fancied slights and imaginary insults. Sort of turnabout, isn't it? Say what you like about the madam. I'll be the first to agree with you, but you have to admit she's not the easily alarmed type. If she found a man under her bed, it'd only be because he was cowering there in fear. Who's chivying her? Didn't say, except that her neighbor's behaving atrociously. Hop up and smooth down her feathers, huh? The idea of smoothing down any part of Madame Pardee was unappetizing, but I said I'd get right up there. I made the entry. 2-7-1-35 a.m., 32-D, Duman. Disturb adjacent room. Then rang the information rack, asked for registrations on 32. I couldn't figure who might be raising hell up in those plush preserves at that hour. With nearly 1,200 rooms here in the Plaza Royale, I don't try to camera-eye all the guests. 
but tower patrons like Luella Bell are something special. Any customer who can afford per diem rates of 60 and up comes in our very important personage classification, especially since the desk scrutinizes applicants for those suites with a bilious eye. There may be occasional exceptions when the house count is up around 100% and the normal number of checkouts don't come through because of a bad storm making it impossible for folks to get out of town by plane. Sometimes, in a case like that, the desk will lower the bars and allow Joe Ordinary to fork over his month's salary for the privilege of spending a few days down upon the Swanee River. But generally speaking, the candidate has to come up with a triple A-1 in Dun and Bradstreet, or a letter written on stationery bearing a royal crest to get booking up in that rarefied atmosphere. So, naturally, we handle towerites with the softest of kid gloves. There are only four suites in the tower floors, one on each corner. All the suites have a big living room, which opens off onto bedrooms at each side, and every bedroom has its adjoining bath and miniature dressing room and its own door to the corridor. Madam, she insisted on the help calling her Madam, Luella Belle Pardee shared the four rooms of her D-suite on 32 with a boggly-eyed chihuahua about the size of an underfed weasel. Luella Bell was the gusty, busty relic of a Kansas City contractor who'd made millions out of political highways. It was my impression that the other three corners of the 32nd were occupied at the moment by some of the oil biggies who'd gather from all over the globe to attend a hush-hush conference on allocation of markets. That bull of beluga and the wine had been rescued for me by Sandor from a little informal supper attended by the select inner circle of the petroleum princes. From what I'd seen of those high-voltage boys, their hard, weather-bronzed faces, their high-tension way of talking, their casual way of telephoning to Amsterdam or Tehran or Bahrain, it was difficult to picture any of them staging a session of barbershop harmony. Anyway, information buzzed back to say I was only two-thirds right. Suite A was occupied by T. Barrow Baker, the tough old tycoon from Texas. I'd heard the bellman call him Soto Voce, the king of the wildcatters, and he looked the part. His eyes had something of the wildcat in them. When he caught you giving him a curious glance, those heavy lids would narrow swiftly until all you could see were greenish glints in the pupils like those of an animal caught in your headlights. In B was Monsieur Armand Lejour, a sort of living legend who is supposed to be on the chummiest of terms with assorted Middle Eastern potentates. I'd said hello to him once or twice and admired his tremendous spread of shoulder and shock of copper wire hair. To me, he'd looked more like a successful football coach than a guy who'd spent most of his life hobnobbing with shahs and such. He had his secretary with him in B, a studious young bird with thick horn rims which lent him a peculiar owlish expression. But the C-suite on the northeast corner overlooking Park Avenue and the East River, and the one adjoining that of Luella Bello, was registered in the names of the Mrs. Kiersey from Sea Island, Georgia. The name was new to me. I couldn't remember having seen them around. I asked for details. There weren't many. The Kierseys were sisters, Sari and Maylene. The girl on the information rack volunteered that they were both young and cute as kittens. They'd been in the house since Friday afternoon, planned to stay a week. There was an NPH on their card. 
Since I'd have been pretty sure to have recalled an odd name like that, I wasn't surprised they had no previous history as Plaza Royale guests. On the way up in the elevator, I wondered who these Georgia pretties were, and why they had been able to land in one of our snazzier suites. Perhaps the blizzard, which was still howling in off the sound, had put the desk in a spot because nobody was checking out. If the Kearseys had made reservations and couldn't be put into any of our commoner fourteen-buck rooms, they might have been given a temporary accommodation rate on the tower. When Max let me off at thirty-two, I couldn't hear any undue commotion. No boisterous bellowing, nothing. I knocked gently at thirty-two D. Who is it? The chihuahua barked. Madam's voice was pitched in the same querulous key as the pooch's. Gilvine, security office. She opened the door. Between the pink marabou collar of her dressing gown and the parrot-green turban arrangement to keep her curlers from showing, Madam's face, puffy and shapeless at best, but now all daubed over with some kind of white cream, looked like the mask of an unhappy Pagliacci. Are you the detective? Of course she'd seen me around the lobby, but she probably thought of a hotel detective in terms of those square-toed, derby-topped, cigar-stub stereotypes in the movies. I try to dress as nearly like the average well-to-do guest as I can afford to. Everything quiet now, Madame Pardee? Too quiet, entirely. She bent to scoop up the chihuahua, clasp him to her pudgy bosom. After what's been going on in there, it's much too quiet. She waved her arm in the direction of the C-suite. That horrible creature may have killed her by now. Man in there. I was careful not to seem surprised, but I was. Gals aren't encouraged to entertain male guests at quarter two in the morning, no matter how much they pay for their deluxe suite. If you'd come straight up when I first called, I guess you'd have thought there was a man in there, she glared. The way she screamed. Sorry you were disturbed, madam. I listened carefully, but I couldn't hear a sound from the adjoining apartment. I expect things will be all serene now. Thank you for calling us. I should think you would thank me. Goings on of that kind, and you call this a respectable hotel. What are you going to do about it? I said I'd look into it. I can see I should have called the police instead. She gave me a look that would have drilled a safe. They wouldn't be trifling away their time, buttering me up when the Lord only knows what's happened to that poor soul. Doesn't sound as if there's any trouble in there now, madam. You're a fool. You think I'm making it up? Her cheeks began to puff out. Beneath the coating of cream, her face was probably turning apoplectic. You'd better go right in there and find out. I said she could rest easy. We always took whatever action was necessary to protect our patrons. We greatly appreciated her letting us know, and so on. She didn't soothe worth a dime. She began to choke up and puff out again like one of the pigeons over in the park. I had the feeling when I got out to the corridor and shut her door that she'd be right out after me to see I did my duty. So, instead of pushing the down button, I strolled along to the main door of Sweet C. When I got right close, I couldn't hear anything, but then I caught it. A girl, sobbing. It didn't come from the living room, but from the north bedroom. I moved to that door, put my ear to the panel. No man's voice, only that sobbing. The spasmodic hiccups which came when a person is exhausted with the weeps. Even then, I might have decided the whole thing had been an exaggeration on the part of Madame Luella Bell, 
I might have gone quietly away, notifying Tim to check on his tower patrol at 2.30 to make sure everything was all right. But Madam poked her head out into the corridor. All I could see of her was that green turban and the fat clown face. Well? She waited a second. You're just going to stand there? Do I have to call the police before you'll do something? I made a pushing away gesture to keep her quiet. Then I tapped on the door. The sobbing stopped. I called, You all right? This is the, Keep away from me. It was a low, throaty voice without much of the Georgia drawl I'd anticipated, but there was no mistaking the tone of terror. You try to come in here, I'll kill myself. Madame Luella Bell screeched, Oh, oh, oh! Her head vanished. Plaza Royale regulations state flatly that no male employee, including security officers, may enter the room of any female guest unless accompanied by an assistant manager. But this suicide talk seemed to be one of the cases circumstances alter. I whipped out my master key, went in fast, half expecting to see the girl poised on the windowsill, fully prepared to make a flying tackle to stop her. She was in bed, sitting propped up against pillows, her knees drawn up, the burgundy-colored blanket pulled up under her chin. A beauty, twenty or so. Spun taffy hair, big violet-blue eyes. A wide, low forehead, a triangular face tapering to a delicate chin. Cheeks streaked with tears. She stared at me without moving a muscle. I'm the house officer, Miss Kearsey. There was no one else in the room. I took a fast peek out in the living room. No one there, either. We were told you were having trouble of some kind. She laughed. I didn't like the sound of it. Oh, yes, she cried. Oh, yes, a little trouble. She flung away the blanket. Her powder-blue pajama coat was ripped at the collar, at the arms. It was buttonless. It hung from her slim shoulders in shreds. It hid nothing. I cased the bathroom so she wouldn't think I was fascinated by her nakedness. The tiniest bit of trouble. She waited until I'd turned toward the closet and had to pass by the end of the bed where I couldn't help seeing her. Then she hurled the blankets and sheet to the carpet. She still had on one leg of the pajama pants, but that was all. It was in ribbons. Was there someone in here just now? I still wasn't quite sure whether I was dealing with an incipient suicide or not. Was there? She whispered it. I believe there was, you know. She covered her mouth with her hand, smothering her hysteria. I didn't just dream I was attacked. You know I didn't dream this, did I? She lifted one of the ribbons of the ripped pajama leg, examining it with the impersonal curiosity of a child. You think I did? We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from Alibi Baby. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.